Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Um, I want to read our scripture, but I also um, want to acknowledge um, that our minds can get so scattered. You know, we're thinking about all kinds of different things. You know, you walk in, you're thinking about your week. Maybe your calendar is pretty full this week. There's just there's so much going on. You're thinking about your past, all these. Um, but I just, I want to acknowledge that the text I'm about to read, maybe before we go into it, um, it, it, it honors us as people to see what Jesus has gone through, like this prayer that um, seems to go unanswered for Jesus. And so whatever you're experiencing um, today when you came in, whether it's highs, lows, hopes, fears, frustrations, doubt, if you're feeling like I, I'm like crushing it in my faith or I'm lacking faith, like either one, just like bring it because this passage is really raw and honors wherever you are in the midst of your faith journey. So um, I'll read today's teaching text here. Luke 22, verse 39 and 46, and then John chapter 15, 7. Jesus went as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And here's John 15, verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. So, Lord, uh, as we look at this passage, um, you are the God that deeply wants to resonate with our humanity as people. And so I pray this morning that we wouldn't uh, resist uh, the full range of humanity that we have, us being overwhelmed, us being joyful, us feeling accepted and rejected. I pray, God, that um, as we look at this passage, that you desire to resonate with us, and I pray we would really sense that in our being today. Um, even as we sing, I'm, we're acknowledging that we desire to believe, and so I pray that you would meet us in those desires today, and that you would give us clarity, and even in our minds today, about why prayers in our life go unanswered. And so, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight this morning. My Lord and my God, I love you, Jesus. Amen. Uh, through this whole series, it's been about uh, six weeks, uh, I feel as though this passage has become the most crucial to me in understanding um, prayer. When, we look at, when, when I just read it, I'm even grasping a sense of depth and intimacy and care um, between the Father and between um, the Son. And if you and I are reading it correctly, we should probably get a sense of growing disappointment in Jesus Uh, The great reformer Martin Luther was reflecting on this passage and said, here God struggled with God. And I find it really fascinating to think of Jesus praying and feeling both connection and intimacy and depth with the Father, but then he ultimately has to go to the cross. So I want to give us a picture of this struggle, but what I ultimately want to do today um, is answer the question, why doesn't God answer my prayers? 
Um, and it, it sounds like a lot, um, but I'm going to say seven things about that. Um, and I'll try to um, be very practical in some of those ways and put scripture next to those. But I think I would be remiss if I didn't just observe a couple things in this text here. And so in Luke 22, um, we're getting closer to the end of Luke's gospel. Um, Jesus is about to uh, go to the cross. He's going to be, uh, he's going to go through legal proceedings. He's going to be crucified on the cross, um, burial, three days, resurrection. So that's sort of right after our passage. Right before our passage, um, Judas uh, agrees to betray Jesus. Jesus is at the Last Supper with his disciples. That's where he's instituting the, the Eucharist meal, the communion meal. He's sharing with them this last meal. And wedged right in between that is our passage today where Jesus is actually escaping, getting away with his three closest friends to pray. And what he's doing here um, is he's naming his desire. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. He's saying, it's, it's not ultimately about what I want, it's, it's what you want. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And so he's naming his desire, right? And it's interesting, we don't really take a lot of emphasis in this, but Jesus, right before he goes to the cross, says, take this from me. I, I actually don't want to go to the cross, right? I don't want to suffer, and then that word agony is there. Um, probably not a word we uh, use regularly. That's maybe a little bit too, maybe it's like the furthest extreme of suffering that we can think of. Um, the word in the ori original language is like the pressure felt from an athlete before a competition, right? You're starting to feel like you, it's almost um, a physical or embodied uh, way of thinking about suffering. And you also have to imagine the passage that Jesus is going to the cross, he's trying to pray with his disciples, and they keep falling asleep. And so there's also a measure of abandonment or loneliness that Jesus feels in, in, in the moment here. But I find, what, what I find so fascinating about the passage is um, if you read the other gospels, you get a more nuanced approach to what's happening. In Mark chapter 14, uh, same parallel passage, it says this, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus is, it said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And then it names the people. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And then what does he say to his friends? Right? His friends are right there with him, and then he tells them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Now, we're going to get to the fact that this prayer goes unanswered, but I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge when facing darkness in his life, Jesus chose a level of vulnerability with his friends, right? He's kind of like in the middle of the prayer here. He knows the direction that he's heading in. He's pleading with God that there be another way than the cross. And before getting to this unanswered prayer, I, 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 can't, I can't ignore the vulnerability that Jesus chooses with his friends, right? Peter, James, John, his closest disciples. And Jesus seems to like pause in the middle of the prayer and open up to them about his distress. And so almost, maybe the better way to say it is, coupled with his prayer is an openness to his friends. And, and you and I, I mean, if you think about it this way, right? You, when we read the Bible, a lot of us try to put ourselves in the, the place of Jesus. And really, the, the Bible's actually written more so that we would resonate more deeply with the disciples or, you know, the one that's maybe suffering or going through it and who needs Jesus. But I look at the passage and I think, well, why... It would have been easy for Jesus to say, they have no idea what I'm going through, right? He's going to bear the, 
the, the physical weight of the cross, and then he's going to bear the cosmic weight of the cross. It would have been easy for, in this passage, Jesus to, you know, huddle up the team and give this heroic speech, right? Like, uh, you, you know what? I, everything is going to be okay, right? Like a little uh, toxic positivity, right? Like, okay, I'm going to die, but don't worry. Yeah, it's going to hurt, but I'm going to be back in three days, right? Jesus doesn't do that, which is so fascinating to me because what he does in the moment of, of growing and understanding of his prayer being unanswered is he invites people into the process. And I think this is great wisdom for our time. I don't know about you, I'm, I'm so prone in the midst of, of um, trials in my life um, to just put my head down and, and focus on what I can control and what I can do. And if I don't acknowledge sort of the outer, maybe I can control what's right in front of me. And so we're, I think we're prone in our time to many numbing distractions, right? In darkness or in times of, of trouble, our tendency is um, maybe to run or maybe it's to hide, to not show up, to, to not reach out, to drown out the evening, you know, on Netflix. And I love that what Jesus models here is a level of vulnerability with his friends in the midst of prayer. I've been talking to uh, my best friend lately. We usually talk every six weeks, every eight weeks, something like that. And uh, we've been talking every two weeks. Um, and we've just been like, every time we end our call, we've been putting that on the calendar to talk. And I thought that if we um, talked more regularly, that we would have a lot more small talk, but we haven't. We've been talking more regularly, and it's almost as if we've picked up where we left off last time. Um, he, I have two kids. He has two kids. And so um, we're talking about that season and what it looks like and the balance of work and, and, and rest. And I've just been really grateful for that space. It's not in lieu of a praying life, but it actually parallels well with a praying life. So when facing darkness, choose vulnerability with your friends. Here's the other thing that Jesus models. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. I, I think what I see here in the passage is like this growing understanding. The Father is going to deny this request to take the cup from me. And so he, he, he goes on, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. I almost see that as that sort of indicator, right? What, what, I'm, what, I, what I'm desiring is not going to happen like the angel came to me. And being in anguish, I love this, he prayed more earnestly. He tuned back into prayer, Right? His prayer is like in the middle of not being answered, and the text says he's pushing deeper into prayer, right? It's a moment where, yes, present the desire, present the request, but Jesus is also praying a prayer of relinquishment, right? I, ultimately, God, I'm praying this, but what you want is ultimately the best thing. And, and maybe that's a good addendum, like in, in your prayer life, in a practical sense, is to pray the desire, right? God, I really want to have children. God, I really do want this job. That's my desire. And that addendum at the end is yet not what I will, but what you do. Uh, one theologian I read this week said that prayer is weakness leaning on omnipotence, right? It's, it's our weakness leaning on something bigger and larger than ourselves, placing our desires there, knowing that maybe there's more to it. So I hope that um, even just in that, that, that those two short addendums before I really want to get into um, why doesn't God answer my prayers, we're, we're, there's, a, there's practical pieces um, to prayer that I think Jesus models in this passage. And we, uh, we come to understand when we look at this passage, Jesus prays his heart out, right? And yet for our sake, what do we know? 
he did go to the cross. The answer to his prayer was ultimately no. He did feel the physical and cosmic pain of the cross. And, and, and you and I can actually look at the passage and say, this is exactly it. Jesus' prayer went unanswered. And so here's the question. Why doesn't God answer my prayers? I hope over the last six or so weeks, I, I hope that what you've heard, um, and I just want to bring this, this larger context, I hope what you've heard from anybody um, praying for you or Brandon preaching or myself preaching, I hope that you've heard that we believe in prayer and that we believe in the power of prayer to change events and to, to change people, to change us, um, to change the mind of God. We've talked a lot about um, different aspects of prayer. Um, so I want to answer this in, in, like a, um, in a way, not like a holistic way, um, but I want to acknowledge maybe the struggle that this is, right? This can be like a theological heady um, endeavor for us, you know, where we start to study. But what do we find out really quickly with something like this? It touches our hearts and our emotions, and it gets into our gut and, and all of this. And so I want to acknowledge maybe the both sides of that, that you've prayed and you've thought, my prayer wasn't heard. I prayed for safety for people, right? I prayed for healing for our family, and it seemed to go unanswered. I prayed for, for, for a significant other for so long, someone to share my life with, and it went unanswered. I prayed for the, the job and the career and the housing and the feelings of depression and the darkness and, and the anxiety, and, and then in the end, what do we come and say? Why doesn't God answer my prayers? And so bring the struggling and, and bring the wrestling, um, and um, maybe we can figure some of this out. So let's start here. Why doesn't God answer my prayer? First point is this, and I'm not being trite when I say this. You never asked, Okay. Verse 2 of James 4 says this, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Now, you're going to distance, I'm prone to distance myself from the first part of this. You're like, well, I didn't kill anybody, so I just, you know, this doesn't apply to me. I think what James is speaking to here is the, the, the measure of control we want. The measure of control where we say, I just will take that upon myself and do it myself. But there's something about prayer that is a presenting of our will and ourself before God where we say, you have the, the ability um, to handle this where I don't. You do not have because you do not ask. And I wonder if someone in the room even today is thinking, I've, I've prone to give up on faith or I've believed, you know, God doesn't care about me or love me because... Um, you gave up praying for that thing over time. Maybe you, you say, I, you know, I, I prayed that prayer. I put that request there. I put that desire there. I prayed for pain in my back to go away. I prayed for my career to take the next step, and nothing came of it. Well, don't give up on that prayer. Maybe you have not because you ask not. Number two, why doesn't God answer my prayers? You have distorted motives or you're not with God. These are really, they're very different, and they're very close together, so I put them together. So let me kind of answer them. You have distorted motives. James goes on to say this in James 4.3. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So think of it this way. Um, Lord, help me win the $1.5 billion lottery, Right? 99.99% of the time, that prayer is selfish, right? You still have a better chance of winning the lottery in that scenario, uh, or not winning the lottery, excuse me. 
But I think 99% of the time, like, that, that is a prayer that's, that's ultimately selfish, right? Um, and I want to I, I kind of dive into this in a second. Could God answer that prayer? I, I want to believe that God could answer that prayer. But one of the things in, in that type of prayer is we're unlocking our motivations, which is why it's still good to pray things like this, because we're, we're getting at our desires, right? We're actually understanding. We're not primarily like, I'm always in tune with how I think and, and how I act, but actually, we start here. We're much more desiring and feeling and loving things than thinking things. And so praying like this actually begins to unlock the motivation. But here it, it, it gets a little bit bigger um, in this other passage here. There's actually evidence in Scripture that prayers go unanswered because God chooses not to listen. Here's what Psalm 66 verse 18 says. Oh, go back there. Sorry, Katie. That's all right. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and has heard my prayer. Uh, the writer, the psalmist is definitely showing off, right? Like, well, God heard me. I don't know about you. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So a little caution here, right? Some of us are tempted to hear, I drank too much last night. God is mad at me, right? Or we're tempted to hear, um, God is not answering my prayer because I did something bad. Here we're turning um, God into like this karma God whose approach is reactionary against who we are and our character. God won't hear my prayer because I'm not behaving like he wants me to. That's not it. Read it again. I think this is really important. If I had cherished sin in my heart, what is that? It's a posture of unrepentance, right? It's a person who has no interest in making things right with God, right? This is a person who's past the point of guilt and shame for the ways that they're um, behaving. And I think one of the, the this, this verse out of context can be actually really harmful to a person's spiritual life because you, you think God is not answering my prayers and you think what's wrong with me at each step of my life and what are you doing? You're turning yourself into a moralistic person who is outside the reach and the touch of God. The grace of God is always gonna surpass your failure but place yourself in a posture of, of repentance. If you're cherishing sin, your back is turned to God. There's no openness, there's no repentance, there's no readiness to make change. And so, of course, God in, in that moment would choose not to listen to that person. So a little nuance there, I think that's really important. Number three, why doesn't God answer my prayers? What if God has, you just don't like the answer, right? or you're not ready to embrace the answer. Uh, there was a non-canonical, meaning not scriptural, um, uh, parable that's uh, resurfaced a lot um, when the vaccines were coming out um, uh, against COVID-19. Um, does anybody know the, the parable of the drowning man? So the parable goes like this, and I'll, I'll, I've shortened it a little bit here. There was a man who lived in a two-story house. The house was near a river, and unfortunately, the river, river began to flood. The river rose. Calls went out over TV and phone. Large jeeps began to drive through the area, and they came to this ever-praying and faithful man and said, you are in danger. You must evacuate. Get into the jeep. And the man said, I've been praying for God to save me. The flood won't get me. You can go. The water continued to rise. Soon the man was on the second floor. A boat came by and said, you are in danger. You will drown in the flood. Get in. No worries, says the man. I've been praying for God to save me. You can go. The flood won't get me. The man goes to the roof. A helicopter comes by and says, you are in danger. Let us help you. 
no worries. I've been praying for God to save me. The flood won't get me. The flood rises. The man dies. He comes to heaven, and he says to God, I had faith. I prayed, and you let me die. Why didn't you save me for the flood? God says, I sent you a Jeep, a boat, and a helicopter, right? (laughs) What if you're praying, God is answering, and you don't like the answer, right? And maybe you'd say, well, that's not unanswered prayer. And I would say, you are exactly correct, right? What if you're praying for the relationship and the old friend is hopping into the DMs, right? Wake up, okay? Like, that's my advice for you here this morning, right? What if you're looking for an apartment and you're like, that's the one, and that door closes, but a different one pops up? What if God is saying, that wasn't the right one for you, but I'm actually answering your prayer because this one is way better and the landlord is less sleazy and it's just gonna be better, right? I want, I, I'm not saying this is always the case. I don't know how to exactly discern that, but what if God actually has answered your prayer and you just don't like it? Number four, what if God is waiting for you to move your feet? Um, I was reading, um, there's a little book by N.T. Wright. Um, he's an English scholar um, and it's about the Lord's Prayer, and he prays, um, he, he walks through each aspect of the Lord's Prayer, and he says, when you pray, um, your kingdom come, your will be done, it's praying your activation into the mission of God, and I thought that was a really helpful way to think about your kingdom come, your will be done. We don't pray that passively. We don't pray that um, sitting back. It's why, it's why we want you to fill out the survey so we can know how to join with God into his kingdom come. Um, this past Thursday, um, we were praying um, for our second Thursday morning prayer, and we were going around in requests, and um, Katie right here actually um, just put out this request. I, I hope I can share this. I should have asked you. I'm sorry. Um, it's, it's not, it's, it's safe. Um, but she was just praying um, that, that she would enact better rhythms. And I really liked that prayer because it was a prayer to get at the motivation. It was a prayer for courage. It was a prayer for the reminder to do it, but she was fully ready to act on it, right? She wanted us to join her in that prayer, and what we're doing is we're joining in on the prayer with our legs. Uh, uh, Frederick Douglass, uh, who uh, was born a slave on a plantation in Maryland, he ended up being an abolitionist and a preacher, a great reformer. He said this, I prayed for freedom for 20 years, but received no answer until I prayed with my legs. And I think that's just such a great way to think about praying, right? You have the bill and you're praying, God, I want the bill to like go away, right? I need that bill to go away. But like, have you called and asked for it to be forgiven, right? Like you're praying, God, I really want the job. Did you send the email that, that also said, hey, I really want the job. I'm the best candidate for it. And so prayer, and in, in, if we're thinking of it in this sense, is, is a way of us actually joining in on what God is doing. It's not us just saying, um, God, I'm really hoping for this thing and do it for me, right? But we're actually saying, God, I, I want to join, join in on your prayer. I want to be a part of the answer to other people's prayers, and I'm joining in on the process. Why doesn't God answer my prayer? Number five, God honors free will. God does not micromanage the universe. And hear me correctly, do does that mean I, I believe that he's um, not able to work in our midst and to, 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 um, to defy creative order? I, I don't. I think that God can do that. And I also believe that gravity is a reality 
of our world, right? If we pray for safety but drop a brick on our foot, that's not God punishing us. It's called gravity, right? Some things, um, if, if we think of them this way, it's that God has established a, a creative order and he lets things function, right? And it's not to say that those things are outside of God's will. It's that he chooses to let those things happen. Um, I, I was trying to think of a better word for this because I was like, some things are just irrelevant, um, but maybe some things are unimportant in the long term. Um, so maybe think of it like this. Um, I know that we have some um, Tennessee football fans uh, here in the back. Um, college football is about to start. Um, do, you guys, do you guys pray for Tennessee football? <laughs> yeah? Absolutely, they say. Okay, so who, who's Tennessee's rival? Alabama. Okay, so any Alabama fans in the room? Okay, let's go. I was really hoping that I prayed that this would happen right here, okay? All right, so J-Webb, Lewis, Davis, here you go. You are a praying people, right? You're praying, God, help Tennessee win. We're going to be terrible this year. I don't care. She's also praying, right? God, Alabama's the best, right? What, what's going to happen? Does God look at the righteousness of these three over, over here? He's going to win, guys, if, if, that's, if that's the case. But the point is, is God is not a Tennessee football fan. No, my point is, is that if God meddled in, in each sporting event because someone prayed, I think he would be going against the ways that he's created us for freedom, that he's created us with skills and abilities and let those things um, flow. Pete Grieg says it like this, um, the creator is not a cosmic slot machine waiting to oblige our prayers with a can of Coke or peace in the Middle East. Neither is he a mad inventor continually fiddling with his own inventions, and he certainly isn't one of those ghastly helicopter parents pouncing from the sky every time we might possibly make a mistake or get ourselves hurt, right? So it doesn't take away from his omnipotence or his omniscience or his omnipresence. It just means that God has created a set of governing principles in the world to make it the best for the most possible people most of the time, right? Most, and, and, and most of humanity um, doesn't experience natural disasters. Most babies are, are born healthy. And I wonder if what, what God does is he tends not to tinker into things that he's established and created. And so, you know, like if you, um, which I have prayed before, God, give me an A on the test that you haven't studied for. That's your fault, right? That's my fault, Right? If every, bri- if every bride prayed on her, her wedding day against rain, the farmers, what would happen to them, right? And so there's a, a sort of balance that we have to take into consider. Does that make sense? I'm just saying, ultimately, my seventh point is I don't know, all right? That's my seventh point, and we will get there, okay? There maybe are something called trivial prayers. There may be things that... Um, that God honors our free will, and it's, it's good to discern when that's the case or when it's something else. Number seven, there's evil in the world. Um, this is a reality of our world. First um, Peter 5, verse 8 says, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And then in John 10, 10, it says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. What if there are things... Um, what if there are prayers that aren't answered because there's an active enemy in our world um, opposing God? 
And you might think, well, you know, Russell, that's a little bit out there. Well, how do you come to grips with how messed up our world is? We have to come to grips with um, the brokenness of our world, the, even the brokenness in and, in and of ourselves. And I would say that the Christian approach to understanding sin, death, evil, tragedy in the world. Like, I watch the news. Kate, Katie and I, um, I can't do citizens. It, like, it, like, gives me anxiety. But, like, yesterday she was like, oh, my gosh, there was, like, a person stabbed in their elevator on 30th Street. And I'm just like, something is wrong in the world, right? Like, we, we barely can watch the news in our house anymore because it's always muting what's happening. We, ha- we, we need an answer for this, right? You turn on the news and like a child is, is trafficked. Like who could possibly conceive of something so dark and something so horrible? There's no explaining away these, these atrocities. And so we need something that actually makes sense of it. And maybe it's that. What, what Romans says is that our world is actually subject to sin. And what Paul says in Romans is actually really, really important because he says not only are we ourselves subject to the brokenness and um, the fallenness and the sinful of humanity, but he actually says that creation is subject to it as well, which, which makes larger things make sense. And so when we realize that there's real evil in the world, when we, when we pray against that, we're saying, God, I, I want you to do something. And maybe some of that brings about that struggle or that frustration. Why have, have those prayers gone unanswered? And then here's my last one, number seven. I don't know. Um, I, I tried reading a lot this week. I, I really wanted, like, I was kind of thinking, like, foolproof understanding of God answering or not answering prayers. And I'm going to be really honest. The more I read, the more I studied, the more I didn't know. I guess um, in humility... Um, Points one through six are just explorations. They're explorations of scripture. They're ways of saying, this is what the scripture says. Um, and there are things that I don't understand about God. That where I, I read the scripture and I'm like, God, you're so mysterious. And I believe that you're beautiful and, and inspiring too, but I'm, I'm also confused by you sometimes. And I don't understand. And, and maybe as a church, like all of us, maybe one of the beautiful things about embracing God in that way is that when we say there's a measure of mystery in God, we're, we're not trying to control God anymore. God is actually having his way in, in us as a people. Isaiah says it better than I do. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God speaking. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I think that you and I can choose to read this verse as like a cop-out, right? Like God's just gonna do what God's, going to do, but what if actually God is way bigger than we could have ever imagined, right? There's more than we can fully grasp or fathoms, and what we can actually do in the midst of that is trust. So here's where I want to end. It's kind of a very, a very random spot, but I thought that this was, the language was, was really helpful. Um, the book of Daniel, and the book of Daniel, um, the book of Daniel is about how to be faithful um, to God in the context that's not like your own. And so Daniel and his friends are exiled um, into Babylon. And so um, they're Israelite kids. They're taken, and essentially the easiest way to say it is that they're brainwashed. Um, their food is taken from them, and they're given the king's food. Um, their, their, um, their Jewish part of their name is taken from them, and um, they're, they're given um, Babylonian um, names. And so they're just fully brainwashed, and they're wrestling with how to be faithful to God in this context that's not like their own. And uh, maybe you remember this story um, in Daniel chapter 3, but the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, sets up an idol. 
and says, everyone is to, to worship this idol that I erect. And whoever does not will be thrown into the blazing furnace. And Daniel's three friends, of course, they refuse to bow down to this um, idol, and they're threatened into this blazing furnace. And I think this language is so helpful. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are um, Daniel's three friends, and it says this. They replied to him, King, to King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. What if we prayed like this? There's, there's three parts of that, right? The God we serve is able to deliver us, right? We pray and we say, God can do it. God has the ability to do it. I, I believe that God can. And then it goes even further. There's, a, there's like a doubling down there, right? And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand, right? God can. But look at the last part. But even if he doesn't. What if we prayed like that? God can. I don't know if he will. But even if he doesn't. God can, I don't know if he will, but even if he doesn't, right? Can God heal your body? Can God give you peace and direction and guidance? God can. I don't always know that he will. I don't know the mind of God. I don't always understand God's ways. But in the end, what if you were able to say, but even if he doesn't, I can still choose to have faith. Let's pray. So, Lord, um, give us this type of faith um, to, to pray in, in, in such a way that we actually believe that you can. And, God, even in the trivial things, God, they're not trivial to, to you. I, I pray, God, that we would pray for healing in our back, for beds to sleep on in housing, for the things that matter deeply to us, to our, about our friendships and the disconnect that we feel with our friends. I pray that we would pray about Tennessee football so that we would just present that to you in a way of saying, this is something that matters to me. This is a desire I have. God, can you do these things? We trust and we choose to believe that you can. We don't always know that you will, but we can trust you anyway. I pray that as we come to the table this morning, that it might be a reminder of your goodness, of your love for us, a tangible reminder, an embodied experience that you are our God and we are your people. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.